uh, we're going to hear um, from the Word of God. And I want to take the, the time to um, share you, with you a little bit about the person who's going to be sharing. Uh, many of you know him well. Uh, in 2015, uh, when Lee Faust, uh, the senior minister before me, uh, left uh, to move on to um, a different work in Virginia, uh, God just made a beautiful connection for us with the creek down on the south side of Indianapolis. And some of the, the men in that church came and they preached for us. Uh, one that came most frequently was Tom Harrigan. And so Tom has been preaching here off and on even since I came for the last seven years. And I know he has a, a great connection with many of you. Well, Tom and his wife, Laura, uh, just accepted a new position in Owensboro, Kentucky, uh, the church, in fact, that Mallory, our children's minister, came out of, and they'll be moving down there in the next month for him to be uh, a teaching and shepherding pastor, um, and we wanted to have him here one more time before they make that move, and so in a moment, Tom will be coming up to share and to preach, and I know that you'll be touched by God's word and God's message through him. I know his heart. His heart is to help people uh, see Jesus, and uh, I think you'll see that clearly this morning. But I want to pray before he comes up. Uh, Father, I thank you. I thank you for the chance for uh, your word to be taught, uh, your word to be heard, and that you, through the power of your spirit, uh, take that word and you powerfully shape our lives and you call us deeper into the life that you would have for us, a life, God, of fullness, uh, a life of power, a life of purpose. And God, I am so grateful that over the last several years, um, you've enabled many opportunities for Tom to stand uh, in this room and to proclaim your word. And I know many people's lives have been uh, enriched. Uh, their faith has been enriched. Uh, through his preaching. Father, so help us to hear today. And God, I even look out to the future and help him and Laura in their transition as they move. And God, may you continue to work powerfully through him. Uh, may you be praised in the coming moments. In your name, amen. Well, good morning. This has been a season of challenge and change for our family, to say the least. Just about a month ago, it was announced uh, at the Creek that after serving there for 12 years, we accepted a new role to uh, move on to another ministry. And then the following week, as it turned out, I had been planned to do this for a while, but it turned out the following week, I was at the church that I'll be moving to preaching. And so just a, a lot of transition, a lot of change. Uh, we have our house for sale. We have a contingent offer on our home, meaning that the people who want to buy our house have to first sell their houses. So there's that going on. Uh, just uh, last two, week, uh, two weeks ago, I was back down in Owensboro preaching, and my wife on the way into church slipped and fell and broke her ankle in three places requiring surgery there in Kentucky. So now she's kind of down for the count and can't really help pack, which, you know, kind of works out for her, but, but not, she's really not, she's really upset about that. And, um, and we're getting ready to take our daughter back to college for her sophomore year here in just a couple weeks. So really not that much going on. 
I mean, really. Uh, so we would just ask that you would just be praying for our transition. Uh, we, again, we, we would just honestly ask that you pray for the people who want to buy our house that they would sell theirs. They're actually friends of ours from the church. Uh, they have a, a, a family that they want to move into a larger home than what they currently have. And so we would love for them to have it, but they need to sell theirs. So be praying for that as well. You know, uh, I don't know if you have been through seasons where you've just absolutely been overwhelmed with life. I mean, I feel like this message is so appropriate for where my family is, but I'm wondering if you ever have this moment where you just need, like, God, can I just, like, have a breath, please? Like, I'm just so overwhelmed. I'm so, there's so much going on. And so if that's where you're at, I just pray that this would be, uh, would meet you where you're at. Because change is tough. And Big transitions are especially difficult. Something comes to an end and something new begins. And it's not really the ending or the beginning that's the most difficult. It's that season in between. It's that season of waiting and wondering, of feeling overwhelmed with the unknown, of mourning something that's coming to an end and looking forward to something else beginning of being excited about where you're going, but trying not to worry about the transition. All of these emotions that we run into, and as I was thinking about change and transition recently, I thought of another memory that if you are the parent of adult kids, maybe you can relate to. Let me set the scene for this moment. My heart was beating fast and I had a lump in my throat trying to hold back the tears. My wife and I had been building to the moment for 18 years and we thought we were prepared for it, but when the time came, I was overcome with sadness and grief. I'm talking about the day that we dropped each of our kids off at college. There's a memory, uh, pick two pictures burned into my memory of, of this moment with each of our kids. Here's the first. This is my wife, Laura, and my son, Josh, and me in the driveway of our home. Right before the day of, we were leaving to take Josh five and a half hours away to Johnson University. This is the moment we were leaving to take him. Now, we're all smiling in that picture, but especially Josh, because Josh was one of those kids who always liked to be off on his own, and so he was ready to go. I mean, he was ready. I remember the first time we dropped him off at like a childcare place at a Christian convention. It was the first time we had taken him someplace. After he was born, he was maybe two years old. And so we took him to this Christian convention and there was some childcare there while we were gonna go into the main session. And we didn't know the people we were leaving him with and he didn't know anybody in the room. So mom and dad, of course, you know, first kid, you're a little nervous. And so we're like, hey, Josh, we're gonna, we're gonna just drop you off and mom, and dad will be right back like don't worry and he like just took off running like he didn't even care and so we were like that kind of hurt a little bit right like you know you'd miss me a little more but he didn't and so he he just took off running that's just josh's personality but this is my firstborn son and so when it was time to say goodbye i i had all the emotions appropriate i was excited and thankful and hopeful and i was sad and worried all at the same time. So because of Josh's personality, because of mine, when it was time to say goodbye, he was consoling me. 
right? So we got this hug going on and I can barely hold it together. Like I can't breathe. Like I'm about to bust out in tears and he's like patting me on the back, right? And whispering in my ear, it's gonna be okay, dad. It's gonna be okay, right? <gasps> like I can't breathe. That's Josh. Then there's our daughter, Megan. Now, Megan uh, is our homebody, and yet she sensed God calling her not five and a half hours away to Johnson University, but eight hours from home to Ozark Christian College. And when the time came to say goodbye, she was a mess, and we were a mess. Here's the picture burned into my mind of that moment. I'm not even going to look at it, (laughs) because I know how I feel when I see it. My wife and my daughter just embracing and crying. Same feelings of being thankful, same feelings of being hopeful and excited, and same feelings of being overwhelmed with sadness and grief. And my guess is you've been there at some point. You've had those feelings where life seems to be spinning out of control, where there are things happening around you or things happening to you that just bring you to this place of, oh, I can't even breathe. And if that's where you are or if that's where you've been, maybe because of a doctor's appointment that brought bad news, or the loss of a job, or receiving divorce papers out of the blue. Or you are hurt by a trusted friend, or you have a flood of unexpected bills. Maybe you're getting ready to go back to school, and you got that schedule, and you got that teacher you didn't want, and nobody's in your class that you're friends with, and you feel overwhelmed. If that describes you, I'm, I'm so sorry that you're experiencing that, but can I just say how grateful I am that you're here in worship because today we get to watch Jesus in one of the most difficult moments of his life here on earth. And we get to watch not only how Jesus endured a moment where he was absolutely overwhelmed, but how he came out stronger on the other side of it. If you want to follow along, we're in Matthew chapter 26. In your Bible or your Bible app, Matthew is the first book of the second half of the Bible called the New Testament, and it's the first of four books that tells the good news story about Jesus. Matthew chapter 26, before we read through our entire passage, let me set the context for us. Jesus has just finished his final meal with his closest friends, and he tells them at this meal that one of them Judas will betray him, which kind of put a damper on the meal, just to be honest, right? And so Jesus leads his disciples out to a place called the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives. Now, this is a picture I took just a few years ago in this garden. And it's got olive trees in this garden. Some of those olive trees have been around since Jesus walked on earth. And so they've been around for a while. And this is a place just 500 yards east of the city gates of Jerusalem. So it's a really quick walk. And this garden is a place of great peace 
and rest for Jesus, but it's also a place of great pressure. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. But this garden, these trees, this area is where Jesus is headed in Matthew 26, starting with verse 36. Let me read this passage for us. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. Then he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and he found them sleeping. Can you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, my father, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away, unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. There is so much that we can learn from Jesus, how he handles this moment of being overwhelmed. And the first thing we can learn is in times of distress, don't go alone. If there's one thing we learned over the last two years, it's the negative effects in our lives of being isolated from people. Study after study revealed that COVID isolation increased things like anger, insomnia, anxiety, depression, high blood pressure, heart disease, it caused an increase in digestion issues, it caused an increase of addictions, just to name a few, all because people were just a little more isolated from others. But even when we're not forced into isolation because of a pandemic, many of us have this tendency of pulling away from others when we're struggling. Now, I'm not 100% certain why that is. I mean, maybe it's because we don't know who to trust when things are going difficult, when we have difficulty in our lives, we don't know who to trust. Maybe it's because we don't like to ask for help. A little bit of pride there. Maybe it's because uh, we like the illusion of feeling in control of an out-of-control situation, so we just try to handle it ourselves to feel in control even though we're not. For whatever the reason, way too often when life becomes difficult, we tend to retreat from people thinking that no one understands or no one can help or no one cares. But notice that even Jesus needed people around him when he was struggling. He asked eight of his disciples to sit nearby while he prayed, and then he invited three of his closest friends, Peter, James, and John, and said to them, stay here and keep watch with me. Look, we know that in life we're going to have difficult moments. It's just a fact. 
And even Jesus needed people to be with him, which begs the question, who are your people? I mean, who are the people that you are intentionally building a relationship with right now that can be with you in difficult times and that you can be with them. This is why, friends, the Bible tells us 59 times, in fact, it commands us to live in intentional community with one another, to love one another, to encourage one another, to serve one another, to carry each other's burdens. The Bible is describing something called reciprocal relationships. Not like the one-way street where you do all the caring and don't allow to be cared for, which those of us who are helpers in the room, like we love to help, but we are sometimes the worst at receiving it. And then there are, there are times that we just like to be helped, but we don't like to give it. <laughs> and the Bible's calling us to live in intentional community with one another in this reciprocal relationship, which means that sometimes you are cared for, you allow yourself to be cared for, and sometimes you care for other people. There was a man named Ezra Taft Benson. He was a farmer and a religious leader, but he also served as the U.S. Secretary of Agriculture in 1948. And he said, the fellowship of true friends who can hear you out, share your joys, help carry your burdens, and correctly counsel you is priceless. That was certainly true in Jesus' day. And I think it's true in ours as well. In times of distress, don't try to handle it all by yourself. And what I really love about this scene is Jesus doesn't just invite some people to be with him when he's struggling. He's honest with them about how he is feeling. He says to Peter, James, and John in verse 38, my soul is overwhelmed to the point of death. I mean, think about that. What an incredibly vulnerable thing for the Son of God to say to mere mortals. My soul is overwhelmed to the point of death. He's honest with them about how he is feeling. And what I think is interesting is that in leadership circles, there's this school of thought that says, don't ever let anyone else that works under you or for you see you stressed, right? There's this leadership school that says, just power through, bottle it up, don't share how you're feeling and just get through it. But that's the opposite of what we see Jesus do here. I mean, Jesus doesn't air out his dirty laundry for everyone to see, but he does invite some people in. And he is pretty honest with them about how he's feeling. He confesses to them what's happening. And if you think about it, Jesus is in a place called Gethsemane. And that word Gethsemane literally is translated to mean oil press. So what would happen in the first century is people would go out to this garden of trees, olive trees, and they would pick the olives off of the tree. And then they would take the olives to this basin with a huge stone in it. And they would put the olives in this basin and they would roll this 700 pound stone over the olives and it would press out every last ounce of olive oil. 
And that's how Jesus is feeling right now. He's feeling crushed on the inside because he knows he's about to be arrested and he knows he's about to be executed and he's feeling that pressure. In fact, the third book of the New Testament, Luke, he records that Jesus suffered something in this garden, in this moment, called hematidrosis. It's a medical condition where the capillaries in the forehead rupture under stress so that it looked like Jesus was sweating blood. That's what Jesus is feeling in this moment. One theologian described Jesus' feelings as an anguish and terror that felt like he was being destroyed from the inside out. He's overwhelmed. And he's honest about it. And I think that's a really good word for us. In times of distress, be honest about how you're doing. Jesus was honest with his friends, but look, he was also honest with God. In verse 39, we see that Jesus falls face to the ground and he prays, My father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. Now that phrase, the cup, it appears a lot in the Old Testament and it appears often in the book of Revelation. And the cup refers to God's wrath. So what is Jesus saying here? Well, he knows he's about not only to feel the excruciating pain of being executed, but he knows that he's about to take on the full weight of God's wrath as he takes on the sins of the whole world. Your sin, my sin. He takes on the punishment that is due us. He puts that on his shoulders. He's about to feel God's wrath. And so he falls down to the ground and says, Father, look, I don't want to do this. Can you make this happen some other way? And notice what you don't see in these verses. You don't see God offended or surprised by what Jesus just said. I can't believe you just said that. Right? We don't see that in the Bible. We also don't see God correct Jesus. Hey, 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 get it together. Right? Just be happy and do what you're told. Right? We, we don't see that in the Bible. No, we learn that it's okay to be honest with God about how you feel, and yet, for whatever reason, we just struggle with being honest. We don't want to be honest with ourselves about how we're doing, because as soon as we confess that we have an issue, we've got to do something about it. So we don't want to admit that there's a problem first. Then we don't want to admit to other people that there's something going on, because we look weak. Guys, right? Guys have more of an issue than, with this than ladies do. And we certainly don't want to be honest with God because we're not sure we're allowed to be. But we learn that it's okay to be honest with God. And look, there's a difference between the way we often approach times of distress and being overwhelmed and what Jesus did. When we are overwhelmed, we have this fearful approach which does really three or four things. The first thing it does is that it doesn't involve God. When we have a fearful approach, we think we're the solution to the problem. 
So we think like something comes up and we go, okay, how am I going to get out of this mess? Right? That's the fearful approach when we don't go to God. The second thing we do is that we, it fights in isolation. Like we push other people away out of pride or not wanting to be a burden. A fearful approach also plays out every worst case scenario in our mind. Anyone else do this? Where like something bad happens and, and then you start to think about all the possibilities of what could happen and then your brain like starts running down this track that you just can't control. Like anyone else do this? I know I do. That's a fearful approach to being overwhelmed. And the last thing, that it does, that it just avoids honesty. You may be overwhelmed on the inside, but on the outside, you're wearing the T-shirt, I'm fine, you're fine, everything's fine. And we chuckle. (laughs) But we're not fine. And we feel alone. We feel like nobody cares, or nobody can help, or nobody understands. But Jesus does. The Bible says that Jesus experienced everything that we've experienced and yet was without sin. So don't you think we should go to him when we're struggling? And yet we struggle with being honest. Look at what Jesus did when he was overwhelmed. Distress drove Jesus to community. He knew he needed friends and he invited them in. Distress drove Jesus to God. And so the question was, God, how are you going to get me out of this? How are you going to show up in this? How am I going to see you in this situation? It drove him to God. And in in his distress, he was honest about how he felt. If you're in a season of difficulty now, or if you're in a season of difficulty eventually, Can I just share with you that God wants to meet you in that moment of feeling overwhelmed? But listen, God cannot help the person you are pretending to be. God cannot help the person you are pretending to be. In 2 Corinthians, Paul said this. He says, when I am weak, that's when I am strong. What is he talking about? He's talking about the fact that when you admit that you can't handle something, that's when God can step in and help you. But if you think you can carry it all by yourself, then you're never going to ask God for help, and he's not going to force his way into your life. When I am weak, that's when I am strong. It's why Jesus' very first words in his very first message are, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who understand that apart from me, they're in big trouble. Because when they realize that they're poor, then they come to God for help, and theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And yet we feel like we have to just carry this stuff all by ourselves. We just feel like we have to carry everything on our own. Well, you know, I just got to pull myself up by my bootstraps. No, you know, Jesus didn't. Like, Jesus didn't. And yet something in us just goes, I got to take care of it. I'm the man, right? Guys, I'm sorry I'm giving you a hard time, right? Because this is kind of more our issue. Ladies, I don't want to be a burden. I don't want to feel weak. And Jesus goes to the Father, and he's honest. 
And so perhaps the very best thing that you could do in a moment of distress is turn to a few trusted friends and say, would you pray with me and for me and then go somewhere with God and say, God, I'm here. But to be honest, I'm not really doing well right now. And tell him how you feel. Be honest with God about what's going on. But look again at verses 40 and 41. We read, then he, Jesus, returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus is teaching us that in times of distress, temptations become stronger. In times of distress, temptations become stronger. First Peter chapter 5, verse 8, we're told to be alert and of sober mind because your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Years ago, there's an acronym that I learned that helps me know when I am more susceptible to being attacked from Satan. Here's the acronym. It spells H-A-L-T-S. It stands for HALT, hungry, angry, lonely, tired, or stressed. When you and I are feeling one of these, we are more susceptible for the temptations that we face to overpower us and for you and I to do things we know are outside of God's will for our life. Now, let's just have a moment of honesty for just a second with one another. All right, you ready? How many of us are at least one of those all the time. Raise your hand. Okay? We are all hungry, angry, lonely, tired, or stressed, or a combination of those all the time. <laughs> and so we need to be on alert. That's, listen, that's not an excuse to give in to temptation because we can justify just about anything. But it is a warning that we need to be on alert for temptations to come in, for us to do things that we know are outside of God's will. The challenge we face, friends, is that more and more people do not believe that Satan is a real being. In fact, the Barner Research Group recently revealed that 40% of Christians don't believe Satan is a real being, but merely a symbol of evil. Not 40% of people in the world, the 40% of Christians, which means that we like the idea of a loving and gracious God that we can go to, but not the idea of someone who's out to steal and kill and destroy our lives, which is why a French poet in the 19th century warned us with these words. He said, never forget that the devil's cleverest ploy is to persuade you that he doesn't exist. He just wants you to believe he's not there so we can prowl around like a lion when we're weak and hit us. But the Bible says, do not fear evil because greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world, right? Greater is the God that's living in us than, than Satan who's wanting to steal and kill and destroy. And at the beginning of Jesus's ministry, right after he was baptized, Jesus went into the desert to be tempted by Satan. 
we see uh, in this temptation that Satan tried to get Jesus to take the easy way to the power and authority and recognition that was only possible through the cross. And that time, Jesus battled the temptation with Scripture. And we read in Luke chapter 4, when the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him, Jesus, until an opportune time. Now, when do you think that opportune time might be? When Jesus is feeling some stress. When Jesus is kind of feeling down. When he's got some things on his mind. Right here in the garden. The temptations are there. Satan shows up again. And this time, even though Jesus knows he's about to be arrested, he's about to be beaten, he's about to be put on a false trial, have people spit on him, smack him, hit him with rods, have this, this cord that rips across his back and pulls flesh off, a crown of thorns on his head, nailed to a wooden cross, and carry the full weight of God's wrath, even though he knows all of these things. This time, he battles Satan with prayer. And he tells the disciples, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Essentially, he's telling them, you can't willpower your way out of temptations. You need to take them to God honestly in prayer. But Jesus isn't done praying, and this time we notice a slight shift in his prayer. Look again at verse 42. He went away a second time and prayed, my father, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. So the first time Jesus prays and he says, look, I don't want to do this. Is there another way? This time he prays, if there's no other way, I'll do it. Which teaches us that even in distress, we need to trust in God's plan. Even in distress. Now, we followed what we believed was God's timing and God's call to move to Kentucky. And so we scrambled to get our house ready to, to go on the market. And literally just two, three days before our house hit the market, what, what happened? Interest rates jumped up three quarters of a, of a percent, right? The highest jump, uh, single jump in my lifetime. And so what, what happens? I just think, okay, there's a problem. Right, and, and it's caused some delay in selling our house. But what happens, at least in my, my mind, and I'm sure happens in yours, is I could become so fixated on the problem that I forget to fix my eyes on the one who can solve the problem. Right, like God is greater than interest rates. <laughs> that if he's called us to go to Kentucky, that he's going to provide a way for us to go, but sometimes we get so fixated on the problem right before us that we forget that God is greater than the problem. And so what are you struggling with right now? Maybe there's a child uh, that's grown and out of the house, but it's not living the way you raised them to live. Maybe there's a sickness that continues to rear its head. Maybe there's a financial issue that you just can't get on top of or the economy in general or there's worries about school upcoming or there's the mispromotion. What is it that you're fixated on? And God is inviting us to fix our eyes not on the problem but on the one who can solve the problem. 
That's what Jesus did. Life's challenges can drag us into worry and despair, but God always sees the finish line and knows what it takes to get us there. And don't think that if you pray and God doesn't answer or God says no, it's because you have weak faith. If anyone had strong faith, it was Jesus. And yet, sometimes God says no because there's a greater yes that we can't see right now. That we maybe can't see until we're on the other side of our difficulty or that we won't even be able to see until we get into heaven. And friends, God's desire is to mold you and I into the image of Jesus. Romans 8.29 tells us that God's desire is for you and I to be molded into the image of Jesus. And sometimes that means the answer to a prayer is no, because there's a greater plan God has in store. Even in overwhelming times, we have to find a way to trust God's plan. But there's one more lesson to learn. And we see it not so much in these verses, but from what happens immediately after this scene. You see, Jesus comes into the garden, and he's overwhelmed with sadness and grief. And then he says, at the end of the text, he says to his disciples, rise, let's go. Like, okay, it's time to go to the cross. But just a few verses after that, we read a simple yet devastating sentence as Jesus is being led away by the soldiers in Matthew chapter 26, verse 56. We read this simple sentence. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. So here's the lesson. Praying prepares us for what's next. Praying prepares us for what's next. Listen, Jesus invited his disciples to pray while he prayed. He prayed, and he went from being overwhelmed to the point of death to faithfully following God's plan all the way to the cross because he prayed. The disciples didn't pray. They slept. And in the end, they all fell away from Jesus. Praying prepares us for what's next. And if that's true, then how do you and I pray like Jesus prayed so that not only do we endure times of difficulty, but we come out stronger on the other side of them? The answer is, I think we shift our prayers in two specific ways. These aren't on the screen. If you want to write them down, here's the first. We change from should to must in how we pray. From I probably should pray because I'm a Christian to I must pray to get through. I don't know why this happens, but for me at least, uh, my prayer life tends to fluctuate depending on how things are going in my life. When I feel really pressed and crushed, my prayer life just skyrockets, right? Like I just, I, I need to pray or else I'm in big trouble. But then like when things are going well and like my, my, my burdens are or light and everything's going really good, my, my prayer life, like I might get through the end of the day and go, I'm not sure I prayed today. I probably should do that, right? But we need to shift from should to must. A friend of mine sent me this picture recently. It's a, it's a courtyard in the Ukraine, 
and you can see there's a cross in the center of the courtyard and a man clinging to the cross. This picture was taken just days before Russia invade the Ukraine. And this man is clinging to the cross as his only hope for his country. And friends, that's the dependency we need on God every single day of our lives. A man named C.S. Lewis said, relying on God has to begin all over again every day as if nothing has yet been done. We need to shift in our prayers from should to must. Here's the second shift. We need to shift from rarely to often. Rarely to often. The Gospel of Luke begins this scene in the garden with with these words. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives to pray. As usual. So this isn't the first time Jesus went there. This was a place, a designated place that Jesus went to often to be with God. And to pray. And so when difficult times came, he didn't scramble and go, okay, where do I go? Like, what do I do? What am I going to do? Oh, difficulty? I'm going to go right back to where I often go to be with God. So where's your designated place? There is a chair that I keep in my office, my old office, which I'll have a place in my new office as a chair that I sit in at home just when I want to be with God. It's like my designated place. Like I know when I sit in this chair, I'm gonna be with God. I need to hear from him. I need to worship him. I need to read God's word. I need to pray. It's my designated place. And maybe having a designated place is difficult for you because just life feels out of control. Maybe maybe your designated place can be your car on the way to work. So like shut off the radio, shut off the music, shut off the talk radio, and just talk with God. God, would you show up today? Would you reveal yourself to me today? Would you help me today? Would you use me today? Maybe it could be a walk around the block just by yourself. Maybe it could be a walk in the park, a designated place that you can go to often. If you are a parent of young kids, then you're just trying to find any kind of quiet and peace in the home. I remember those days, right? Like you're in the bathroom and knocking on the door, like, can I just have five minutes, please, right? And so perhaps for you, your designated place has to be five minutes earlier in the morning with a cup of coffee and a Bible to shift from, I should pray, to, I need to pray, I must pray, and rarely to often. We need that place. We need that place to be able to be honest with God about how we're feeling. To come to him and to say, God, I'm here, but I'm not really doing well right now. I need you to show up. And one of the places that we get to do that is at communion, whenever we worship together. And so in just a moment, we're going to be dismissed to go to the tables and to have the symbols of the body and blood of Jesus. The very thing that gives us hope, that gives us freedom, that gives us life. And we get to sit with those things in our hands and be honest with God about how we're doing. Thank him for his sacrifice. Thank him for what he went through. Thank him for his forgiveness. And then ask him, God, would you show up in this situation?
So let me pray for us, and then we're going to share in communion. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the example of Jesus. Thank you that we can watch him get through a difficult moment and come out stronger on the other side because he went to you. And so, God, may we go to you often. May we recognize our need that we must go to you. And we thank you for the opportunity to do that right now in communion as we hold in our hands the symbols of your ultimate love for us, the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. God, help us to be honest with others and with you about how we're doing, knowing that you are greater than anything we might face. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.